empower us to be your church in this city and serve your church to the ends of the earth. We pray it in Christ's name. Church, this morning, we're again glad to have you here at this early service. I'm glad you woke up this morning, rubbed some of the crusties out of your eyes, uh, and pumped yourself full of caffeine to be here early with us today. If you got a Bible, uh, our text for our sermon this morning is in Matthew chapter 28. Uh, we'll read verses 1 through 15 together, and if you don't have a copy of it in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, if you'd like to follow along there, you can do so as well. Let's find out Matthew chapter 28 in the account, Matthew's account of the resurrection of Jesus. We'll pick up reading in verse 1 where Matthew writes, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers, go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is God's word. You know, I've always been intrigued by uh, television series that are kind of like crime shows, right? Law and Order or FBI or things like that. My daughter calls them interesting shows, right? There's always something interesting happening. They're trying to solve a crime, figure out what's going on. Uh, and to do so, they try to put together all the pieces of evidence. They pull them from various places as they do their investigation. And I think in front of us this morning in this particular text, we have several pieces of evidence that Matthew sets forth for us about the reality of the resurrection, right? And then also he shares with us how we ought to respond to that reality, right? So that's what I want us to look at this morning as we consider the resurrection of Jesus from Matthew's gospel is the fact that there, the resurrection is real and that it demands a response from us. Those two things. So let's look at those two this morning as we consider the evidence and decide how we ought to respond to it. So the first thing I want us to see in this text this morning is this, is that when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, you've got to understand that what Matthew writes and records and all the other gospel authors record and write is, is, is the evidence that would give us, render the verdict that the resurrection is indeed real. It is indeed real. It is historical. 
And there's a couple of pieces of evidence in the text that speak to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to give you three of them. The first one is this. In verse 1, we're told that the first witnesses to the resurrection were Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, or the mother of James, we're told in Mark's gospel, two women. These two women were the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Now you go, why is that evidence for the reality or historicity of the resurrection? Let me tell you, church, this is something that the early church would have never made up or have never included in the story had it not actually happened that way. And the reason being is because in most ancient cultures, including the Jewish culture and the Greco-Roman cultures... Women were not accepted in court as legal witnesses. Their word was not admitted as testimony. In fact, some two centuries following the writing of the gospel accounts, there was a pagan by the name of Celis who would write a number of books attempting to refute Christianity. Okay? And he was, he was poking fun at Christian leaders about what he called, these are not my words, these are his words, all right, about what he called the gossip of women about the empty tomb. And he said, one of the reasons we know Christianity can't be true is because the accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And then he goes on in his writing to say this, and we all know that women are hysterical. Not my words, his words. See, everyone in the ancient world would have known this was a problem. Legally. They would have said, yeah, we, yeah that's, that's not the best case scenario to have two women as the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. The most significant milestone in human history. First piece of evidence they wouldn't have included unless it actually happened. Second piece of evidence is this. In verses 11 to 15, we read about the Jewish leaders concocting a conspiracy to explain the missing body. Of Jesus. See, some of the guards that have been posted at the tomb after the resurrection, they come to the Jewish chief priest and they report what had happened. And whenever they show up there in Jerusalem and give their report, they take the, the chief priest take counsel with the elders, other leaders, other wise and seasoned leaders, and then they offer the men a sum of money to concoct a story that some of the Jesus followers or his disciples came and while they were asleep rolled away the stone and took the body and they said in addition listen if you get in trouble with Pilate like the governor comes down on you we've got your back okay we're, we're, we're gonna deal with that we will take care of you and Matthew tells us that at the time of his writing this was the story that was still circulating among the Jews to the, that very day, right, that the disciples had come to take the body. One of the things this tells us is this, is that the empty tomb was an established fact in the ancient world, even among the Jewish leaders, that on that third day, there was no body there, right? The, the, the earliest argument against Christianity, right, they admit the empty tomb, and so they got to come up with a way to explain the empty tomb, the fact that it was empty on that Sunday morning. Right, so they concoct this conspiracy and tell this story that some of Jesus' followers stole the body. 
And it's just significant because the Jewish leaders, they didn't deny the fact that the tomb was empty, but rather they came up with an alternate explanation, some alternate facts, if you will, for why the tomb was discovered to be empty that Sunday morning. In fact, a compilation of early Jewish writings acknowledges this very fact. It acknowledges that the tomb was empty, and they try to explain it away. So it was very well established that the tomb was empty. Now, why is this important, church? Why is this important? You've got to remember the Jewish leaders were hostile and opposed to Christianity. They were hostile witnesses. And in acknowledging the empty tomb and giving credibility to the fact that there was no body, they had to admit a, a, fa- a fact that was certainly not in their favor. That is not something you want to acknowledge if you were trying to squash a movement. So why would they admit the tomb was empty unless the evidence was so strong and so compelling that it could not be denied? There's one scholar who says says it this way. He calls it the positive evidence from a hostile source. In essence, if a source admits a fact that is decidedly not in its favor, the fact is genuine. It's genuine. And listen, here's the deal. If they wanted, if if that's not really the way that it went down, And because Christianity began to spread like wildfire in the ancient Roman world, right? And so all, all, if if the religious leaders came to take the body, right, all they had to do was what? Produce the body. And all of a sudden, everything comes unraveled. If the disciples had really come and taken the body, right, don't you think that if they were trying to pull the wool over the rest of humanity's eyes, for 2,000 years, and all of a sudden, they had the body hidden away in secret somewhere, right? Whenever they began to be crucified upside down, burned at the stake, fed to lions, tortured, and killed, they'd have been like, no, no, man, we were just playing, right? We, we've, let, let us show you, all right? They wouldn't give their lives for something they knew was a hoax, So the tomb was empty, and everyone in the ancient world acknowledged that fact. The third piece of evidence for the resurrection is found in verse 6, where the angel says to the women, He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. See, some people will say that the resurrection account was just the product of some miracle happy ancient culture. Because in the ancient world, the the currency of the ancient world was miracles. They were happening all over the place and at all times. But listen, so 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 we would and and, and people in the modern world will say, well listen, we know that miracles aren't really possible today. Right? They, they, they believe all kinds of things could happen back then, but we know that's not really possible today. But I want to tell you something this morning, church, that they didn't think it was possible either. And here's why. There's a three short, and, and, and the angel says, he has risen as he said. As he said. In other words, and you can read the gospel accounts and see when Jesus predicts, I'm going to be cru- handed over to the chief priests and elders, crucified on the third day, rise what? Again, right? Rise again, rise again. Jesus has been telling his disciples this multiple times throughout the gospel accounts. He predicted that this was going to take place. He said it was going to happen. And yet on the third day, on the third day, all the male disciples are scattered. They're all still in hiding. And you've got two female followers of Jesus who go to the tomb. And Mark's gospel tells us they go 
not to see if he had risen, but they go with spices to anoint his body, assuming that he was still there. So no one's sitting around, scratching their heads going, huh, the third day. Maybe he's alive. Let's go see. Everyone go to the tomb, right? They didn't think it was possible either. So it wasn't some story they had concocted. See, their culture had just as much of a problem with the resurrection as ours. Greek thoughts, Greeks thought that salvation was the severing of the spirit from the body, that we needed to escape the body and all the trappings of the body. The Jews were the last people on the face of the earth to worship a human as God. That wasn't going to happen. And some Jews had in their worldview a general resurrection at the end of the age, but no concept of an individual rising from the dead. So they didn't think this was possible either. So you got two women, non-legal witnesses in the ancient world, showing up at the tomb as the first witnesses of the resurrection. Right? You've got the, the, the ancient Jewish leaders concocting a conspiracy to explain the empty tomb because the evidence was so compelling that no one in the ancient world denied the fact that the tomb was empty on Sunday morning. And then you've got the fact that the, the people who are astonished by this didn't believe it could happen in the first place. Matthew gives us these three pieces of evidence for the reality of the resurrection, church. So listen, I want to submit to you this morning, it's not enough to just understand the resurrection. The resurrection demands a response. Demands a response from me, demands a response from you, demands a response from everyone who encounters the facts. See, I believe Matthew aims to show us a proper response to the resurrection through the reactions of the two women who go to the tomb Sunday morning. So the resurrection is real, and the resurrection demands a response, requires a response from us. See, when they arrive, they're greeted by an earthquake as an angel comes down to roll away the stone and sits atop the large rock that once covered the entrance to the tomb. And we're told that when this took place, the guards who were stationed at the tomb, they, they shook in fright or terror, and they passed out, right? They became like dead men, right? And so here they are, right, on their backs. <laughs> By the way, if, if the human race was solely dependent upon men for its survival, we, we wouldn't make it. The women, the women are there, and they're still in there. They're, they're, they're seeing some stuff, but they don't pass out, Right? And he tells the women that Jesus is not there, but that he has risen, as he said, come see where he was. And then he tells them, go, go ahead of, to Galilee and tell my disciples, I will meet them there. And when, when the angel announces those words, the women turn about face and they begin to make their way where the angel told them. But we're told in the text they respond with two, two, what would seem to be conflicting emotions. All right. They respond with fear and they respond with joy. Fear and joy. Now, oftentimes, whenever we read the word fear in the Bible, we soften it to mean just only a sense of reverence. And though that is included in the concept of fear in the Bible, the, the, it also means being filled with terror or fright or to be in dread. Right? So if you think of it this way, fear throughout the scriptures is like a combo meal. Okay? Right? With a, with a serving of reverence and a side of terror. Okay? That's both of these things mixed together. Okay, that's what fear is. And so whenever they move away from the tomb, they're moving away in terror and fright. 
but also with a deep sense of respect and reverence for what they have just seen and what they have just heard. And listen, church, the first response to the resurrection, to hearing that this man rose from the grave, right, is this sense of dread and awe, this terror and reverence. How can it be? The second emotion they respond with is that of joy. See, the reality of the resurrection, it unleashes a joy that can never be extinguished. Because we're told in the text that it's not just joy, but you see the adjective on the front side of that word, it's a great joy. A great joy. It's a, like the literal word in the Greek language means a mega joy, right? Anything that's mega is big. Anything that's mega is massive. Anything that's mega is deep and expansive. Anything that is mega... Right? is similar to what Peter describes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, whenever he says, though you have not yet seen him, right, your hearts are filled with what? An inexpressible joy filled with glory. In other words, a joy that is too deep for words. You don't even know how to express it. He says that is the kind of joy, this great joy that they respond with. And they respond with this kind of joy because Jesus was risen from the grave. They believed the report that they had heard. And this man they had followed with their lives for the last three years is not dead, not rotting, not a corpse, but is alive. And listen, the, the reason they are filled with such great joy is, is the same reason, right, that whenever you and I, Whenever we look at, I'm not, on, I'm not on Facebook very much anymore. Those of you who may have seen my page, you recognize that. The last post there was like in 2016, okay? So just deal with it for what it is. Um, but every once in a while, I, I, I get on to check out church stuff, and what I end up seeing sometimes are like time hop pictures of my children, right? They go back, right? And so I see them. Karen showed me one yesterday. She pulled it up on her phone, and it was our kids at Easter five years ago. Right, my daughter was six, and my son was nine. I had to do the math in my head there for a moment. Okay, five years ago, right, and, and my daughter standing there with her blonde curly hair, and my son standing there, like, he's not here this morning. Uh, but when he used to take pictures, he would just stand there like this, right? And so he's taking the picture just like that, right? And so I'm looking at this picture of them, and my heart just over, is overwhelmed with joy, Right, and it made me think back to the day in which I was standing in the delivery room right, on September 3rd, 2007. And my wife is, right, like I said, if the human race had to depend on men, it wouldn't make it, right? Uh, my wife is in the throes of labor and this child comes out and the nurses had to untangle the umbilical cord from his neck and make sure he was okay. And then they put him in my arms and, I begin, and I'm holding my firstborn. And I remember my heart just being filled with awe and wonder and joy. And then to watch him grow up. And the same with my daughter. Why is that? Here's why, church. Because our deepest joys are found in persons, not in things, not in possessions. And so when the women hear that Jesus is risen from the grave, Right? Here's the reality that the highest person then ought to be the one who elicits the greatest mega joy in our lives. 
And so they are filled with this joy, this fear. They can't imagine how it's taking place. They're terrified and reverent in the presence of this messenger from God. And then they're overflowing with this joy. This person that whom they had loved is there. He's risen. Third, third way that Matthew tells us that we ought to respond to the resurrection is worship. See, they had heard at this point that Jesus is alive. But as they make their way toward Galilee, who meets them along the way? None other than the resurrected Christ himself. And what does he say? Greetings. Right? Greetings. And what do they do? They're like, hey, what's up, man? What do they do? They fall on their faces, grab a hold of his feet, and the text says, and they worshipped him. And they worshipped him. At the sight, at the encounter of the resurrected Jesus, what else are you going to do when you see a man risen from the grave other than prostrate yourself before him in worship? In fact, the word worship in the Greek text literally means to bow before, to throw yourself down, to prostrate yourself before. And whenever you put yourself in that position, church, it's a physical, it's a physical picture of a spiritual reality that's taking place in the heart of surrender and vulnerability and obedience and adoration. Right? Because anytime someone comes, like if my children would walk into the room and say, oh, Father, right, and get down on their, that's not going to happen, but get down on their faces, right, then there is a surrendering that's taking place to what I've told them to do, right? Anytime we prostrate ourselves before someone, it's this sense of, I give up my will, I give up my desires, I give up my wants, I give up my wishes, I give up my life, and I lay it before you. That's worship. But putting yourself in, on, the, on the floor in front of someone also is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a position of great vulnerability. Which means there's, no, there's nothing that I'm holding back now. There's no pride that I'm operating with. Because if you're going to prostrate yourself before someone, all the pride has to go out the window. And so there's nothing that I'm holding back. It's a place of obedience of saying, yes, I surrender to you in a place of adoration, saying you are the highest, you are the greatest, you are the most significant. I will center my life around you. And that's how these women respond to the resurrection. They respond and worship out of this terror and reverence and joy, falling at the feet of Jesus. And let me tell you something. If the resurrection is real, then there is no other proper response. <laughs> there is no other proper response. So the question this morning, church, is this. Have you ever responded to the resurrection that way? I'm not talking about merely understanding the evidence. Right? Because you can understand the evidence and not respond the way that we ought to respond. I'm not talking about merely affirming the fact of the resurrection, although that's good and necessary as well. I'm talking about surrendering your life, opening your soul in all vulnerability, obeying from the heart, and adoring Jesus above all things in worship. Have you ever responded to the resurrection that way? 
And I want to close this morning by just saying there's probably four kinds of people here today. First of all, there may be people who aren't Christians and they know they aren't Christians. People who, have, who know they've never responded to the resurrection of Jesus this way, never surrendered their life to him, never yielded everything to him. They've never opened themselves up to be vulnerable before him and b- borne their souls. They've never come to a place of adoring him above everything else, finding their deepest joy in him. And if that's you this morning, I want you to know that he stands risen today just as he did on that day. And he invites you to come to him. And the Bible tells us that any who would come to him, that he shall not turn away. But that he would receive by his grace. There may be those in here as well, a second kind of person who aren't Christians. But they have. Or, or, or I'm sorry, who are Christians, but they have wandered from following Jesus. And I want you to tell, tell you this morning as well that he stands risen before you today, ready to receive you. Ready to receive you if you would surrender. I don't know what it is where you may be wrestling with God in your heart. I don't know where the rebellion might be sourced or located for you. Or where it may be expressing itself. But I tell you this morning that if you would come ready to surrender that to him. That he will graciously, he will kindly, he will gently and mercifully lift you to your feet. Third kind of person may be those who are not Christians but think they are. Because they repeated words at a VBS at some point. Or at a youth camp, but there's really no fruit of repentance and holiness in their life. There's really no evidence of that adoration. It never really has been. They walked an aisle, they prayed a prayer, they shook a hand, they got wet in some water, but they never really were born again. And I tell you this morning that Jesus stands ready to receive you as the risen Lord and Savior as well. And then there are those who are Christians who are here to rejoice in the crucified and risen Christ. Who have crossed the line of faith. Who have, by God's grace, to the best of their ability, surrendered their life or adoring Him with all their affections, finding their joy in Him, and at, at some points, right, still respond with that sense of awe and reverence and fear and terror because God is bigger than them. So I don't know which type of person you are this morning but I say with confidence I say with confidence and the reason I say with confidence is because just after this portion of our text the verses we'll read for our benediction this morning Jesus says to his disciples go go to every every place and every person which, there's, which means this, there's no one beyond his reach. There's no one beyond his grace. And there's no one beyond his mercy. That means you, even if you've never crossed the line of faith, that means you, even if you have and you have turned back, that means you, even if you thought you did, but this morning perhaps realize that you haven't, and that means you. That means you, even if you are here this morning to do nothing but celebrate our risen Lord, knowing that there's still, right, still a mixture of struggle with the flesh.
if the resurrection is real, then Jesus cannot reside at the fringe of your life, but only at the center as you throw yourself at his feet and worship. Have you ever responded to him that way? Let's pray together. This Easter Sunday morning, Father, we rejoice in the resurrection of your son. The fact that indeed it is real, it is historical, it is verifiable. There's evidence, so much evidence that many people have tried to explain it with alternate theories for centuries. And yet at the end of the day, the simplest explanation for the empty tomb is the resurrection of Jesus. I pray that that evidence would persuade our minds and as our minds are persuaded father with the truth of the reality of Jesus risen from the grave I pray that our hearts would be captured by him for those under the sound of my voice this morning who have never never responded to the resurrection in the way that these two women did with fear and reverence and joy and worship. I pray that you'd be gracious to save. For those who have, Father, I pray and have wondered, I pray that God, that you would be gracious to, as, as, the, as, our, as a shepherd of our souls, to leave the 99, go after the one and bring them back into the fold. And for those who have, and know that they still wrestle with the indwelling flesh and still struggle with sin, but they are here this morning to once again worship the risen Christ. I pray that you meet them in this moment with your grace, with your mercy, and your kindness. Would you be gracious to save, gracious to sanctify, and gracious to fill our hearts once again with the joy of the resurrected Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. I want to invite you to stand this morning as we sing in response to what the Lord has said to us through his word. I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for
this morning, if you are with us this morning and you just need to talk to someone, pray with someone um, about where you're at with Jesus, I would love to connect with you. I'll be at the kiosk in the back of the room. And um, if you have questions about what it means to follow him, I'd love to connect with you as well. You can check out uh, these cards here. On, uh, there's a checkbox at the bottom of that card that says if you want to know more about following Jesus. If you check that box, somebody will be in contact with you before the end of the day today. And we would love to connect with you if you don't have time to stay around after the service. Uh, but we would love to visit with you, pray with you, and uh, share with you more about Jesus and the power of his resurrection in your own life. As we go today, I want to leave you with this benediction from the end of Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 28. I'll, I'll, I'm sorry, verses uh, 16 and 17 aren't going to be on the screen, so just listen to them as they are read. But then you'll, hear the, you'll see the other two. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is with you always, church, to the end of the age. May you go in his grace and peace. You're dismissed.